0: Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. A few months ago, it may have been two months or so, whenever uh, Jordan Dancer and I realized that we had back-to-back Sundays, he asked me if I wanted to do a back-to-back kind of mini-series on the Lord's Prayer, or the model prayer, whatever you call it. And I was uh, pretty quick to accept for a couple of reasons. Uh, One being because the Lord's Prayer is such an important prayer, and it's such an important passage. You know, we read through the Gospels, and there are times that Jesus encourages us to pray, and he gives us a great example of a person in prayer. He gives us a great example of a person who is constantly in prayer, who is in desperate prayer. But only in the Lord's Prayer do we find a time when Jesus says, pray like this. And throughout the history of the church, the Lord's Prayer has been very important. To the people of God, there's an early church or early Christian document called the Didache, which is one of the earliest Christian writings outside of the New Testament. And we learn from that that the early Christians would pray this prayer three times a day. And we can see throughout church history how people have come back to this prayer over and over again to be like the disciples of Jesus, to be taught by our Lord how to pray. And so, for one reason, I was excited to talk about this uh, prayer because it's so important. And then on the other hand, I was kind of excited and ready to accept that idea because Jordan and I both have spent a lot of time thinking about this prayer. And so I'd already had a lot of ideas about, about the different parts of it. And so I thought this would be easy. I could, you know, I wouldn't have to do a whole lot of studying. I could just kind of throw my thoughts down on a piece of paper and then I would be able to preach that. That second part ended up not really being true. Because as I began studying this more and more for this sermon, I realized that I just can't exhaust how deep this prayer is and how much it can teach us and inform our own prayer lives. So uh, last week we began uh, the Lord's Prayer, and then uh, this week we will continue and finish our discussion on it. And I say, uh, I mentioned that, you know, it's something that I... Didn't, can't exhaust, and it's something that even was challenging for me to pray, because I want you to understand that I'm preaching this morning not as somebody who is a prayer master or a prayer guru. I'm not somebody who has been to the mountaintop and can come down and tell you how, to, how you can get there. I struggle with prayer. I know that there are people out there who say that prayer comes like, it's like second nature to them. It's like breathing. People say that prayer is something that just comes naturally. And I want you to know that that is not me. I hope that that may be the case for some people here. That would be wonderful. But that is not how it is for me. For my whole life, prayer has been a struggle. And I recognize that it's an important thing. I hope we all recognize that prayer is important. But I think a common experience of us is that prayer is hard. And so I want us this morning to talk about prayer, and this prayer in particular. And I want us to to join together as novices to learn at the feet of Jesus. Whether you've been praying for a few months or for decades, I think we can begin again and learn to pray at the feet of Jesus. And that's what I want us to do this morning as we continue uh, from last week. So last week, Jordan Dancer talked about the first half of this prayer The first half of the Lord's Prayer begins as this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the first half of this prayer, we learn to pray to God who is our Father Now, this is a very special thing that we are able to do. We're able to call God our Father, not just because we're human beings, but because of the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is a unique thing that we have, that we've been adopted into the family of God. As Paul writes in his letters, that it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that testifies to our adoption into God's family. And it allows us to call him Abba father, much like my daughter calls me dada. And I love to hear that. I love when she wants me to help her, when she wants me to pick her up, she wants my attention, and she says, dada. We call our father, we call God, Abba, Father. It is a special relationship that we have with God. This is not as if we were begging some disinterested Greek god who didn't really care about us unless we had something to offer them. And it's not as if we are reaching out to some celebrity on social media hoping maybe they'll acknowledge us or retweet us or something like that. We are praying to the God of the universe who you are in intimate fellowship with. And he is a God who cares so much about what you have to say that he listens attentively. As a father who would sit a child on his lap and ask them, what's the matter? That's the God that you pray to. And is our Father that we pray to for the hallowing of his name, for the coming of his kingdom, and for his will to be done. Each of these things that we prayed about, or we talked about last week, has one thing as their focus. One thing is the topic of the first half of the Lord's Prayer, and that is God. God himself. We learn that prayer is not simply, uh, first and foremost, about getting the things that we want, but about submitting our lives to the, the creator of the universe and learning to use our lives to magnify him. We pray that the world would come to lift up his name as holy. We pray that his kingdom reign would become more and more visible and would spread throughout the world and in our own hearts. And we pray for His wise and gracious will to be done. All of these things are done in heaven perfectly. And we pray that all these things would be done on earth, just as they are in heaven. And so as we approach the second half of the prayer, we don't leave behind the first half. We don't move on to the second half and forget about the first half of this prayer, but we take it with us. As we pray this prayer, the second half of the prayer, we must remember that the one to whom we pray is a loving Heavenly Father, and that above all the selfish things that we could search for in this life, our primary end is to search for God, to hallow His name, to seek His kingdom and to do His will. And yet, as we come to the second half of this prayer, the focus of the prayer does shift. While the first half was about seeking the face of God, the second half of the prayer is about throwing our cares down at his feet. Though he is all-powerful and worthy of a lifetime of praise, he still cares about you. Even though he deserves everything we could give him, he wants to hear what you need. He wants to hear our hearts. And so Jesus gives us the second half of this prayer, in Matthew 6, in the middle of the sermon, sermon on the Mount, he says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning, as we begin this second half, We begin with the fourth petition of this prayer, which is, give us this day our daily bread. This is a petition that God would provide for our needs. After uh, Martin Luther died, he died of a sickness, and, and as they went into his bedroom where he had died, they found a piece of paper on which he had scribbled a note just days before he died, and on it it read, We are beggars, that is true. And in large part, this prayer... Praying for our daily bread is a prayer that shifts our focus and reminds us of our daily need for God's provision in our lives, that we cannot go a day, an hour, or or a minute without God sustaining us. Now, you may object to this. You may say, you know, I got the job. I worked the hours. I took home the paycheck. I bought the groceries. I cooked the meal. I didn't need God in any of that. How can we say that I need God? How can we say that I depend on God? But to say such a thing, I think, would be to ignore, to put on blinders and ignore how much of that process that you just described is really out of your control. Think about, for instance, the fact of the position that you may have been placed in, or maybe the family that you've been born into that allowed you to get that sort of a job. Or maybe the country that you were born into that made that a possibility. There are so many things that are beyond your control. There are so many factors that affect whether you can actually provide for your own needs. And if tomorrow you lost your job, it would become apparent very quickly how much is truly out of your control. And though we may have little control over our own life, God, the Bible is clear that God is in control in ways that we just cannot see. That God is in control of so much. In fact, Colossians 1.17 says that in Jesus, all things hold together. And Hebrews 1 and 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is at work in, this way, in the world in ways that you don't know. So we can't say that we don't need him. We need Him more than we realize. Which is why we need this prayer. Especially in 21st century America, where we're taught to be independent. When we're taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and figure everything out ourselves. Where we're taught that we don't need anybody else. We pray this prayer to teach ourselves that we do need God. We pray this prayer to teach ourselves that we depend on him for everyday needs, for our food and everything else that sustains our lives. We need God, and so we need this prayer. When I was growing up, I often ate cereal for breakfast, which is a common thing, of course, for kids. And admittedly, I eat that almost every morning still. But uh, I grew up eating cereal just about every morning for breakfast. I would walk down the stairs... And on the kitchen counter, there would be boxes of cereal and and bowls, and there would be cartons of milk and spoons and all of that to make a bowl of cereal. I would always hope for the Reese's Puffs or the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but I'd settle for the uh, Honey Nut Cheerios if I had to. But it was there every morning because my parents put it there. My parents put it there because they wanted to provide for me. I didn't work to buy the cereal, and I rarely participated in the shopping for the cereal to select it. It was simply there when I needed it. My parents provided it because they loved me, and they knew that I needed, I needed it, and they knew that a 12-year-old should not be concerned about whether they can have anything to eat in the morning. And so in their love, they provided for my needs, so I didn't have to worry about it. And I think this is a good image for how and why God provides for us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and just a few verses later from where we're reading right now, that if we will seek the kingdom of God first, that he will provide for our needs. In praying this prayer, in praying give us this day our daily bread, in meditating on this, we are saying to God that we will seek the kingdom and trust you to provide the rest. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we should all just go quit our jobs and expect there to be Reese's Puffs in the pantry tomorrow morning. We should still be wise with the things that we've been given and steward our responsibilities well. But it does mean that we need to quit obsessing over building up our bank accounts and our retirement accounts to levels that would cut off our need for God. We need to use our money wisely and be good stewards of what we've been given by God. But let us not ever try to remove our dependence on God. If we ever build up our stockpiles of money big enough that we no longer need God, we have failed. So, yes, use what you have wisely. But never for a second think that you don't need God. So we pray give us this day our daily bread to open ourselves up to god about all that we need and then leave it there with him trusting that he will provide the fifth petition of this prayer and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors we as human beings we love to point out the bad guys you know we love to be able to say it's them We love whenever we can say that the evil is coming from someone else. But this petition forces us to come to grips with the reality of the evil that's inside each and every one of us. As John wrote in his first epistle, in 1 John 1 and 8, he said, If we say that we have no sin, if that's something that we can say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We cannot lose sight of the fact of our sin against God. As much as we might like to do that, as much as we might like to think that we are doing everything that we need to be doing, that we are the nicest person around us, if we lose sight of our sin, of the fact of our sin before God, so much else will fall apart. Confessing our sins to God is not always easy. You know, Admitting failures in general is not pleasant. It's not a pleasant thing for us to do. But let me remind you how we started this prayer. We prayed to our Father. So when we pray, and we pray, forgive us our debts, we are not praying to some divine tyrant who just can't wait to punish us. We're praying to our Heavenly Father who can't wait to forgive us. And so we should feel comfortable praying to God, confessing our sins to Him and asking for forgiveness because we know that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And remember this. Confession brings you to a place where God can bless you. Confession brings you to a place where God can bless you. Confessing your sins to God is a wonderful thing. And Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who have an adequate sense of their own spiritual bankruptcy before God. So for us to open up ourselves before God, to lay ourselves bare before his throne, is a necessary step in following Jesus. A hard heart that refuses to acknowledge sin is not available to accept the guiding hand of God. But those who make themselves vulnerable are are fertile soil for God to work with. Confessing your sin to God makes you available to the working of his hands. As long as you are unwilling to confess your sin to God, you will be like a clay pot that has already been baked. It's been formed in a shape, and when you bake the clay pot in an oven, it hardens, and you can't mold it anymore. There's nothing you can do. All that you can do is break it in pieces. It's done once it's come out of the oven. And as long as we're holding on to our sin and refusing to confess it and ask God for forgiveness, that's our heart. But God can do something amazing. He can unbake the clay pot. He can turn it back to clay that can be molded. And turned into what God wants you to be. But you have to humble yourself, recognize your sin, confess that to God, ask His forgiveness so that He'll be able to change you. This is the power of confessing your sins to your Father and trusting in Him for forgiveness and restoration. And while the first half of this petition is difficult, the second half really isn't any easier. As we say, forgive us our debts, there's the tagline on the end, as we forgive our debtors. And I read that, and I think, really? Are we asking God only to forgive us as we forgive our debtors? Now, I don't... This is a difficult passage, and I don't believe that this means that if you haven't perfectly forgiven everybody of every offense in your life, that God is then going to hold you accountable for everything that you have ever done in your life. To say such a thing, I think, would be to uh, ignore the mercy and, and goodness of God. But the simple meaning of this, I believe, is this, that if we are asking God to forgive us, then we should also be about the business of forgiving others. That that should be our business. If we're asking God to be a forgiving God, it's totally inconsistent for us to turn around and be unforgiving people. And so as we pray this prayer, we have to keep this in mind. We're so accustomed accustomed to dwelling on how others have offended us. We think about how somebody cut me off in traffic. I think about how somebody made a rude comment to me, how some family member was not very patient with me. And sometimes we hold on to things that have offended us, people who have hurt us from long ago. Maybe it was so long ago that we don't even really remember the details of what happened, but all we remember is that they hurt us and they are in the wrong. And we hold on to those grudges and they harden us. But as I kneel before God Almighty, I realize that the offenses against me are trivial compared to my offenses against God. Only when I see my own sin does forgiving others become possible. John Stott wrote, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. Do we struggle to forgive others? Could it be that maybe we have not come to grips with our own sin against God? Have we just been painting over our sin with a pretty color and ignoring how terrible it really is. We pray this prayer and it forces us to face our own sin. And in so doing, we are given the perspective that we need to forgive others. So we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the final petition, of the lord's prayer is this, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, as we pray our way through these uh, petitions, we may scratch our heads as we arrive at this one, and I've thought long and hard about this petition and and this is a, this is one that we probably will never quite understand exactly. It is something that may cause us some confusion, especially as we look at it at first. I mean, what does it mean to ask God not to lead us into temptation? You know, at, at the outset, we can say, whatever it means, we are not asking God if He would please not try to get us to sin. Because that would just be totally inconsistent with God. I mean, James says that God is not tempted by evil, and he cannot tempt anyone to sin. That's just not within the character of God to tempt anyone, to try to get anybody to sin. So whenever we pray this, from the outset, we know we can't be asking him, don't try to make us sin, because he would never do that. So what does this mean? I think we find some help if we look at the Greek word, behind what is translated here as temptation now the greek word is uh, pyrasmos and in the new testament we see it translated as a couple of different things we see it translated as temptation as trial and as test in various contexts it's translated as one of those three things temptation or trial or test And one important usage that I think might shine a a light on on this for us is at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you remember that Jesus, when he he begins his public ministry, he is baptized by John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him, and you hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 1, we read this then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So immediately after the baptism of Jesus, he goes into the wilderness to face Pyrasmos for 40 days against the devil. Jesus is led by God to face Pyrasmos by the devil. And we can learn a couple of things here. For one just very clearly the holy spirit led jesus to the wilderness to enter pyrasmos and so evidently it is possible for god to lead someone into whatever this concept is whatever this trial or testing is god does sometimes lead and can lead people to this but why did the spirit lead jesus there this is an important question why would the spirit lead jesus to the wilderness to be Tempted. Was it because the Spirit wanted to try to trip up Jesus to try to get Jesus to fall? Was it because the Holy Spirit was hoping that Jesus would go onto the side of the forces of evil? No. Far from it. In fact, the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness because it was Jesus' mission on earth to destroy the evil one. We see here that Jesus is led into the wilderness so that the devil can tempt him, so that Jesus can destroy evil. Jesus had to face pyrasmos and God the Father wanted him to because the mission of the Messiah was to go into the belly of the beast and slay it. And as you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus sees as his enemy the devil and all of his Forces over and over again, Jesus is not just teaching us nice things, He is in a battle for the world against evil and the evil one. And Jesus says in the Gospels that He has come to bind the strong man, talking about the devil. That was His mission on earth to enter this world characterized by evil, to endure trials, to endure Pyrasmos and to wage war against the ruler of this world. So for Jesus, the pyrasmos, the temptation, the trial, the test, was not simply a time when someone was trying to make him sin. Though the devil was trying to make him sin, that's not why God led him there. For Jesus, this temptation or trial was the battleground between good and evil. In order to defeat evil, Jesus had to face a life full of pyrasmos, a life of battling evil and the evil one. And it reached a fever pitch near the end of his life when he entered the garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion. Jesus took his followers with him as he awaited the climax of his battle with the devil. And his disciples You know, they had been with him in his whole ministry. In Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, you are those who stayed with me in my trials, in my pyrasmos. You were with me. And so he brings these who have been enduring his trials with him to the garden. But Jesus knew as they approached this final trial that he would have to endure this alone. He knew that this last trial would be one he would have to face by himself. So he told Peter, James, and John in Matthew 26 and 41, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into the pyrasmos that I am about to face. Jesus was not saying, watch and pray that you don't be tempted to fall asleep. No, what Jesus recognized was that they, Jesus and his followers, were about to enter the crucible of suffering. They were about to go through the most significant trial of Jesus' life. And Jesus wanted them to recognize and to, to be spared from the most significant part. Because Jesus knew that only he could actually go through the very worst of the trials. Only he could enter into the depths of the belly of the beast. What Jesus understood and his disciples seemed slow to grasp was that this was their greatest trial, that they were on the brink of true And In the crucifixion, Jesus battled evil face to face he went into the greatest pyrasmos and won. So when Jesus tells us, back to the prayer, when Jesus tells us to pray that God would not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one, we should begin by thanking Jesus for taking the ultimate trial on himself He entered the pyrasmos head on and he beat the devil. He slayed the dragon. He killed the beast. And so we are spared from the ultimate trial and temptation. Then we can pray that God would spare us of the most significant battles that we face in our lives against evil. We do not have the promise that we won't ever face trials and temptations in this life. For after all, God has called us to imitate Jesus, to go into this world and contend with the evil of this world. It is our mission to contend with evil, and any time we do that, we are facing trials and temptations. So we can't escape ever being forced with trials and temptations. Instead, what God promises is that the worst of our trials and temptations are handled by Jesus and that He won't let us fall into any trials or temptations that we cannot overcome. That He will not let us be tempted beyond our ability to withstand them. God will never let us enter a battle with evil that we can't, with the help of His Spirit, win. And that's what we pray for. When we pray this prayer remembering how Jesus has already defeated Satan and endured the most severe trial and temptation. As we pray, we pray that walking around in this world, seeking as we seek the kingdom and and fight against evil, both in ourselves and out in the world, that God would not let us be outmatched. And as we pray, we know that God has already answered. That Jesus has already faced the greatest trial, and now we can have confidence. With the conquering Messiah, we can face our trials with him living in and through us. So how does this change us? Because I, I firmly believe that all, all the parts of this prayer should be changing us. That we are praying this prayer, that we, after praying, would be changed. So how does praying this That he would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How does that change us? Well, if we know that we are led by our loving Father, who will not let us endure a battle with evil that we can't win, then we should live lives of confidence. We should not live lives with fear, but with courage. We don't need to fear the circumstances that we face, nor the roads that might just lie ahead beyond the crest of this hill. We don't need to fear those things. Whatever they may be, we will be secure. Jesus goes ahead of us as the conquering king, and he will not let evil overcome us. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the people of the Messiah. The the, He will not leave our souls in shale. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. He provides a way of escape. So live fearlessly for God. Follow God with every bit of your energy, not out of fear, but out of courage and confidence in Jesus' ability to protect you. As we come to the close of this prayer we had six petitions we prayed our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one and then we end with this which uh, is called a doxology doxology as we come to the close of the prayer, we are brought full circle back to the beginning of the prayer. We began praying about God and, and kingdom, and we end the same way. Though recently, in the second half of the prayer, we've been focusing on our daily bread and asking forgiveness for our sins and asking that we not be led into great trials, we now remember That God is the focus of all our prayer. That God is the focus of this whole thing. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Kingdom and power and glory in this world is achieved through violence, coercion, oppression. But not so with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the servant king. Jesus established his kingdom through suffering. His ministry was one of service and compassion. And when we pray, Yours, O God, is the kingdom and the power and the glory, what we are doing is we are insisting that Jesus is in charge and those who appear to be so are not. And we are insisting that the ways of Jesus are the true ways to victory. And so as we pray this whole prayer, for God's name, his kingdom, his will, for our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance. We pray in full recognition that it is God who sustains us and it is God who is victorious no matter what we face. This is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My hope, and the hope that Jordan Dancer has as well as we put these couple of sermons together, is that we will all take the time to meditate on this prayer. To think how we can make our prayers form to the shape that Jesus gives here. How we can make our prayers more like what Jesus prays here, what he how he teaches his disciples to pray. To pray, and over time, we will learn to pray prayers to our Father who is in heaven and who loves us. We will seek His name, His kingdom, His will, even as we place before Him our needs for food forgiveness, and protection. Jesus invites you to pray to his Father. Won't you sit at his feet and learn from him? If there's anybody here that needs the help of the church, we'll ask that you come forward as we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com normanchurch.com normanchurch.com